This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Julian Zawistowski of Project Gollum explains the distributed computing platform he and his team at IMAP are producing. The first alpha, Brass Gollum, will be released in weeks. The IMAP organization itself is an interesting subject matter, which may be the subject of a future interview. Before we get to Julian, however, Wall Street veteran Caitlin Long explains what blockchain can offer financial regulators. So today on the Ether Review, we have Caitlin Long. Thanks for joining me, Caitlin. Happy to be here. What an honor. Thank you. So could you explain your background and how you became involved in blockchain technology? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I worked for 22 years on Wall Street. I uh, have a legal and master public policy background, went straight to Wall Street and spent uh, all of that time post-school up until this past April uh, working for big financial institutions in various parts of the world. Most of my background was in life insurance and pensions, uh, but, uh, but I worked in lots of different parts of the industry, so know a lot about it um, and uh, started and ran three separate businesses, so was in fairly senior positions. I uh, hadn't really, with the exception of something about 10 years ago, touched the balance sheet of the financial institution. So my businesses were always fee-based. Okay. So now, so you have some understanding of financial regulation and the, uh, and the current climate of interest in, uh, in blockchain from the field of financial regulation. Yes. Uh huh. So can you explain what blockchain can bring to that field? Yeah, sure. I, I think blockchain can bring efficiency and much better accounting than the current system provides for existing mainstream financial institutions and that we should all be happy about that because even if you are a so-called Bitcoin maximalist, there are tremendous improvements that blockchain can bring to the financial industry as we know it today. Uh, I, I, I have said in, in a recent blog post that I actually do think Bitcoin is the new blockchain and that we will eventually pivot back to denationalized money but in the interim, there's a lot of good that can be done in terms of improving the transparency and reducing the risk to safety and soundness of the financial system by deploying blockchain technology. We don't have to go all the way to a, a denationalized money in order to get a lot of interim benefits. So could you please describe the pain point that, uh, that blockchain can solve for regulators and for our current financial system in, term, in real terms, in terms of uh, an example of, of something that, uh, of an issue that exists today that could be, uh, could be alleviated with, uh, with blockchain technology? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, uh, uh, blockchain is, is, as most of, the, of your listeners will know, a distributed database that allows all of the participants to see the same information at the same time. And the, for the insurance or for the securities and, and banking and commodities industries, the benefits of that are that they don't have to run their own 
ledgers. They can all share the same ledger. And that, that brings the potential for enormous cost savings because you don't have to run your own ledger and, and you don't have to spend a lot of time reconciling your copy of the ledger to someone else's copy of the ledger and figuring out why you, you, your footings are different. Uh, and I think also, very importantly, the counterparty risk uh, to the extent that that the industry does move toward a shared ledger, the counterparty risk in the industry will reduce pretty substantially. There's no real reason why trade settlement and and uh, at the moment why trades can't settle at the moment of of trade. Um, technologically, we've been able to do that for quite some time. So it's just and and by the way, in some markets in the world, that's exactly the the market structure. Yet in the U.S., we have T plus three settlement. That's not a technological issue, but I um, and, and that is, by the way, why there is so much counterparty risk in the system. And uh, the regulators understand that, and they are interested in the benefit of this technology, not just in making the industry more efficient, but from the regulators, which of course is something the industry cares about. But from the regulators' perspective, making it safer and sounder, which they care about a lot. Could you explain this idea of rehypothecation? Yes, rehypothecation is is essentially for for those listeners who are familiar with the Austrian School of Economics, you'll you'll understand the phrase uh, fractional reserve banking. Um, rehypothecation is is fractional reserve banking for the shadow banking system, and what it does is it's it, it, someone has a, an asset that is collateral. It's effectively money like. Um, it, it 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 effectively is the base money, if you will, the monetary base of the shadow banking system that that's collateral. Collateral can be things like a treasury security, a, a, a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac security, um, a high quality corporate bond sometimes, but it's, it takes on moneyness to use a phrase of one of my favorite uh, commentators, Doug Noland. Those things, those, that collateral takes on moneyness in the um, shadow banking system. And what happens is that if someone has possession of that collateral, that enables them to put more leverage on their balance sheet. Now, rehypothecation, it can happen more than once. Someone passes the collateral to another counterparty, and then they have the ability to use it to put leverage on their books. And just as with fractional reserve banking, you end up with multiple dollars of leverage on that same base money. Uh, And um, an economist at the IMF named Manmohan Singh, whom I've never met, has for years done tremendous work in this very area where he estimates what the collateral chains, uh, the, the length of collateral chains, and uh, he estimates that they're, they're down from four prior to the financial crisis to three now. But what that means is essentially that one in every three people who think they own a treasury security or any other security that's used as collateral if the musical chairs ever stop, only one of them really does, because after all, there's there's really only one of of that uh, of that collateral, and so therefore, rehypothecation is an area where um, shining some real transparency into the financial system would bring benefits in terms of safety and soundness uh, to the regulators. But <clears throat> wouldn't shining that light in a kind of uh, in a kind of Schrodinger esque fashion? Cease that uh, cease the music in the in the game of musical chairs and uh, and lead to some very hard uh, days of reckoning. You know, I don't think so, and here's why: because their capital charges on a lot of that 
um, a lot of those practices have gone way up. There's a lot of good that Basel III and Dodd-Frank have done. That they've done. They've created a lot of issues as well. But they are truly deleveraging the financial industry, which is too leveraged, and I think it remains too leveraged. I I, I said hats off to. Uh, I think it was last weekend, there was yet another article saying that there will be yet another surcharge on eight systemically important financial institutions, SIFIs. Uh, and I thought, good, because it's needed. And so, um, so, so yes, this will shine light on, on, on the length of collateral chains, but it's not like the industry doesn't know these issues are there. And the credit departments, frankly, very much want to have the insight and knowledge as to who um, who is holding the collateral because they want to make darn sure that if anything goes wrong, they get their collateral back. So what are the, uh, I mean, the, this is actually kind of hard to, hard to understand how you could have multiple people claiming ownership of an asset, you, you know, and, and then clarifying that without someone feeling left out in the cold. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I think, you know, we know that that's how fractional reserve banking works. And yet it has worked this way for more than 100 years. And uh, and yet, yes, there have been series of bank runs. But for the vast majority of time, there, there really isn't um, a lot of systemic risk that comes from that practice. And the same is true of rehypothecation. You know, 99% of the time, the system works and it's just when you get a run on the system that it becomes a problem. Now, the interesting question that I would pose is, gosh, you've got the central banks there in the traditional fractional reserve banking context to be the lender of last resort and to provide new liquidity in the event of a run on the traditional banking system. Who's there to do that on the, if there's a run on the shadow banking system? Because you cannot create new collateral you can't create new treasury bonds. You can't create new, um, new Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bonds. Those, those things have a finite number uh, in existence. Um, so unlike the Fed can create new money uh, to stem a, a run on the traditional banking system, there isn't any equivalent that can create new collateral in, to stem a run on the shadow banking system. And so what you have is is the alternative fallback, which is the Fed expands its balance sheet as it did in 2008, which was a run on the shadow banking system. But uh, as as Dr. Singh in his IMF reports points out, what that did was take a lot of credit out of the shadow banking system. It didn't take it completely down, but it took a lot of credit out, and we replaced that credit with with money, with, with, with true base money, monetary base, M zero federal reserve, um, uh, monetary base. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to understand what happened in 2008, because it looks like velocity collapsed. If you look at, at the old sort of monetarist, um, measures of velocity, uh, and that's because the federal reserve expanded its balance sheet so much. And the traditional banking system didn't expand credit by anywhere near the multiple, that uh, the Federal Reserve injected monetary base. And the reason is because there's something else going on completely independent in, in, in what we call the shadow banking system that's not tracked in the M0, M1, M2 type of measures. And, uh, and that c credit was collapsing. And the Fed was refilling the bucket, if you will, by, uh, by replacing the collapsing credit in that market with money. Um, and that's, by the way, why we did not see a big uh, outbreak of inflation. 
I'm beginning to get a grasp of 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 this because it is you know this is so opaque. You know, um, yep. I mean, uh, so so what do you mean by these terms M one M zero? Uh, yes, M M one M zero M two. Those are measures of money in the which is a really it's measures of credit, which is a money substitute in the traditional banking system, and uh, those are those are numbers that the Fed has published for for decades. So the monetary base is the is is what we call high powered money. That's the money that the Fed has has put out there into the market, and there's about four and a half trillion of that, four point two trillion, I think now, uh, of monetary base. There's sixty five ish trillion of non financial debt outstanding, right? So if you think about it, um, there's sixty five trillion of total on four point two trillion of base money. That's a that's a lot of leverage in the in the financial system, but not all of that is in the traditional banking system. I don't know off the top of my head what the breakdown of that sixty five trillion is. But uh, uh, it's it's in the last 25 years, the majority of credit that was created in the financial system in the U.S. was created outside of the traditional banking system. So you, the hierarchy is you've got the monetary base at the bottom, and then you've got M1 and M2, which are measures of credit that's been created on top of that money. It's essentially your fractional reserve banking in the traditional banking system. But then on top of that, you've got all that credit that's, that sits out in the, the, the non-traditional banking system or shadow banking system, as some call it. Um, and that's not measured by those, those Federal Reserve um, ends, if you will. Uh, it, the Fed does keep track of it. There, if you're curious, you can peruse something called the Z1, which comes out every quarter. And in fact, yesterday, I just spent hours perusing the Z1, and we'll be writing up an economics piece about, about credit growth and the impact of that on the economy. Um, uh, but the, you know, the data is there. It's just that I don't think it's well understood how credit is actually created in the economy in, in today's day and age. And, uh, and, and that is something that I hope to be able to shed some light on in future blog posts. Well, I, I hope we get to. Uh, I hope you'll give us an opportunity to syndicate some of that content on Consensus Media. That would be really great for our audience. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, I am. I am. It's funny. I'm not in the business of trying to drive, you know, um, page views to my website. I'm I, at the moment. I'm unaffiliated. I have a couple of investments in blockchain companies, but I'm in the business of educating at this point. I have a. A somewhat unique vantage point that I've I've uh, discovered it is somewhat unique um, for having been a senior person in the financial industry, but also having been around Bitcoin and blockchains for longer than most and uh, most of my peers from the financial industry. So that's a combination that I think is helpful, um, and and that's why I've I've found myself in a lot of conversations with regulators because I can see both sides, I can bridge both sides, I can help understand and explain from both sides perspectives, why this is good and where the pain points might, might come and, and how we're going to get from here to there. So I think we're in a really good, good place right now to tackle the question, how can, uh, how can distributed ledgers or, or blockchains, uh, solve the, uh, the problem of the opacity of this 60 plus trillion dollar credit base? Yeah, great question. So one of the great things about blockchains of any sort, even permission, private permissioned, you know, sort of closed network blockchains, is that they provide an immutable accounting record. They give transparency. And 
even if you're talking about relatively small networks, that's better transparency than what we have now. And remember the critical aspect of blockchain is that everyone who's a participant in that network sees the same information at the same time. And the impact of, of that on regulators is that they can, for the first time, see all of these complex portfolios of the big systemically important financial institutions and the big hedge funds and, and some of the other big companies that they care about, big players in the market. They can monitor all of those positions in real time. The tools to do that did not exist because you couldn't actually create a ledger where everybody saw the same information at the same time. So that is critical and I think will bring incredible transparency to the financial industry. Now, I did put a warning in that, that blog post about, uh, actually in a couple of the blog posts, to the regulators to say, hey, you, I encourage you to get involved in these conversations because some of the new technology platforms that are being created in the industry are leaving some of the critical information off the chain. And if you want transparency, if you want to grab a hold of this once in a generation technological tool as it's being implemented and, and have a voice in saying, I need all of that critical information. I need to be able to see at, at every moment in every day what the leverage of the big financial institutions is and what their exposure is to each other. Then you have to make sure that, that the platforms that are implemented do not leave that critical information off chain. And it's a, it's a balancing act, right? Because there's, there's a, there, there's, there are throughput issues, right? The Bitcoin blockchain and, and, and Ethereum blockchains are designed to be relatively slow compared to the transaction throughput that, that the, um, um, you know, SQL database type systems that the, that the financial industry uses today. And, um, you know, they just don't have the ability to do tens of thousands of transactions per second, right? That's the kind of throughput that big financial institution systems can do today. And so there's a balancing act between a blockchain, which, which you know, certainly Bitcoin and, and Ethereum are designed to be relatively slow, right? They, don't, they were never designed to have that kind of throughput. Um, and I know I'm stepping right in the middle of the scaling debate. Um, and, and, but I also do believe that the industry is going to work this out and there will, you know, Bitcoin will scale up as it grows. Uh, and, and we just won't even, you know, five years from now be thinking about the scaling issue because we're going to figure this out. But, um, that's one of the big challenges with the, the, the truly decentralized platforms is they don't have the throughput to do the kind of transaction volume that the existing centralized database type infrastructure of the financial industry has. And that's what they need. And so therefore, they're adopting their own versions with much, much, much greater throughput, but they're giving up some of the transparency as a result. And that was my warning to the regulators to say, hey, folks, recognize this, right? This, this train's moving without you if you don't step up and say, hey, we want this full transparency because we want to be able to see where the leverage of the financial system is at, at any moment in time. Is, is a fully decentralized ledger necessary though? Couldn't we just do this with a, uh, with a permission ledger where uh, the regulators basically ran the, uh, ran the validation nodes and uh, and people could and institutions could interact with that ledger. Yeah, 
Yeah, you could. And and that is that is one potential way to set this up. It would not have the kind of security that uh, that a fully um, permissionless network has. Uh, but in in some markets, that'll be exactly what is implemented, whether it, the nodes are run by the participants in the market, more likely, and the regulators just have a read only node or whether the, the regulators are the ones who are actually doing the confirming. And that very well could be what some of these intermediaries whose whose existence is is somewhat questioned um, because it, they're not necessary anymore in a peer-to-peer market. And when I say peer-to-peer, I'm talking about institutional investors buying securities directly from institutional issuers. I'm not talking about you know retail. Um, so some of these intermediaries might not be necessary, but the role that they will take on if they're smart and they pivot to this is they might be the ones that operate the network. They might be the ones that provide services around the raw data in the network. Those kinds of, of roles we don't have today um, because the structure that we have in the market doesn't call for them. But these institutions who are smart will pivot toward those roles to create real value-added software services around what is likely to evolve over a long period of time, which is moving towards blockchain-based networks everywhere. So how do you see this unfold, unfolding in the, in the long term? How do, how do you see the road to a uh, to blockchain-based networks and uh, operating the entire financial system uh, developing? And do you see that, uh, do you see a future where these networks are truly decentralized? Well, yes, I do. Uh, to answer your last question first, I do. I think that's inherently superior than than centralized networks, but I do not think that we'll go straight there. And that's where I would maybe um, have a, a, a disagreement with some folks who say that that blockchain isn't going to be helpful and relevant. I think it absolutely will. It's an intermediate step. I love Andreas Antonopoulos, and he said, you know, gosh, look at all these companies that were afraid of the technology when the internet came along, when TCPIP came along. And so they built these great intranets and didn't open them up to each other. And it wasn't until you had everyone, you know, the big companies actually fully putting everything out, fully exposing themselves to the web, that you got the real innovation on the web. And, And I think he's right, but I also think that many companies both for regulatory reasons and just it, it, this is a process that's going to take time. Um, the legacy costs, uh, the conversion costs, the switching costs, so to speak, are very high. And it's going to take time. And will many companies effectively do the intranet when, to use this new shiny new thing that's, you know, back to the analogy of TCP IP? The shiny new thing is blockchain. And they're going to use intranets, i.e., permissioned networks. But I do believe that over time, the permissionless networks are ultimately going to be superior and we will get there. But I think it's 10 to 20 years down the road and it's not literally a a switch being flipped. And uh, I think there are real incentives for the end users, be they people who are using the payment system or people who are using any sort of system for transfer of assets, whether it's real estate, securities, what have you there are real incentives for the end users to want these permissionless networks, but it's not something that will happen overnight. So what are the challenges that, uh, that we face in, in getting these technologies deployed? Oh gosh, many. Um, the biggest one is, is just the switching costs are quite high. This is such a different paradigm of, of IT infrastructure, 
right? It's a, it's a decentralized paradigm. Even these permissioned blockchains are decentralized relative to what the existing IT infrastructure is. And so I think there's a very big question as to whether the companies that are trying to go back and tokenize existing assets that were already issued in paper form in the old system, is there really that much benefit relative to to um, the cost? And are they going to run into the fact that that cost is the switching costs are just too high versus those companies that are just focusing on let's put new issued, newly issued assets on a blockchain. Let's not go back and try to tokenize the old ones. Let's just focus on new issues. And the new issues, if they're issued on a blockchain, they live natively on a blockchain. They don't need any of that old infrastructure of custodians and um, central securities depositories and you know transfer agents and things like that, right? Because the blockchain itself does all of that. And that's where I think the biggest benefit will be. And you can go to more you know, decentralized networks, but uh, this is going to be a long process. And I do believe that there, there's, there's, that we should dial back expectations about how fast it's going to be to be implemented because it's a long road and there's it's an awful lot of very expensive infrastructure with high switching costs that uh, that has to be taken apart. Uh, and, and I saw, where was it? It was, um, I think it was Pete Rizzo at uh, CoinDesk wrote a, a very interesting op-ed where he had bought um, several Wired magazines from the 1990s and he was flipping through them. And they talked about the fact that uh, the cable companies were just going to be taken over by um, by streaming. And 20 years later, we're finally seeing it. And I think this very well could be a 20 year process where it takes just, you know, there's a, there are a lot of, of wins along the edges, but it takes 20 years for a full switch over to happen. That's a bit of a reality check there. Yeah. Well, but by the way, that's not, I'm not being pessimistic. I'm, I think I'm being realistic. Um, there are whole markets that will go there first, right? There are whole markets that have some markets are still operating on fax machines and Excel spreadsheets, right? Those are pretty easy targets for switching over to the new technology. Um, there are some markets like public equities, right? Where with high frequency trading, you know, there just are really not a lot of, of operational issues surrounding them. Um, they're, they're pretty efficient from an operational perspective. The, I think the public equities will be the last one to switch over just because that whole infrastructure is expensive. And, uh, it, you know, most of the public equities that will be outstanding 10 years from now have already been issued. But there are markets where most of the securities that will be outstanding 10 years from now haven't been issued yet. Those are the places where I think the technology can have the greatest impact. And so when I say it's a 10 to 20 year process, I'm talking about a complete switch over where things like public equities, which I expect to be the caboose on implementation of this technology, <laughs> um, it, it may be 20 years to get it switched over. What is the, the, the feedback you get from regulators when you, when you talk to them about this kind of stuff? Well, um, fascinating. And I, I don't want to disclose any conversations, but they are all fascinated. I've yet to find a regula regulator who's not fascinated by the technology. Frankly, I've yet to find any audience that isn't fascinated by the technology. Um, and I've been speaking about this. My first uh, speech to an audience about Bitcoin and blockchains was May 2014 to a corporate treasurer audience. 
And you could have heard a pin drop. And one of the treasurers told me afterward, he'd never seen his colleagues as engaged and enthralled with the topic. And I've experienced that so many times, as so many people who speak about this topic do. It, it's, uh, it's, it just captures the imagination. So I think that, um, that we're still in the education phase, but we're, with the regulators, we're going to phase two. It, you don't start now with, hey, what is a blockchain? You're, you're now, okay, how do we implement this? How do we harness the power of this technology to do good, to help you do your jobs? And that's, that's, that's the phase that we're in right now. And so that's why I, again, just kind of found, found myself in right place, right time. Somebody who's got that experience and a little gray hair, um, and, uh, <laughs> a lot, and, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain experience too. This is not something that's new to me. And, uh, um, you know, I, so I'm somebody who can, I, who, who can spend a lot of time with them. If you had told me eight weeks ago that I would have, after leaving my, my, my prior firm, um, spent time in Janet Yellen's office and um, talking directly to bank and securities and commodities regulators and talking, you know, spending time at the UN and, 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 and having multiple insurance industry regulator conversations. If you predicted all those things, I would have said no way, but um, that's what's happened. It's been, it's been quite a, quite a ride. And look, this is a place where I think I can really help the industry advance and bridge gaps of, of, of misunderstanding. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So you say you, you left, uh, when you, uh, when you left your last employment, what are you doing for employment now? I'm not, I'm actually running this blog, which is, which is free. I'm not being paid by anyone at the moment. I'm, I am independent. I do, as I think I said earlier, have a couple of investments in the space that are legacy investments that I invested in. Um, one of them as early as I think it was late 2014, maybe it was early 2015 was my first investment into a, a blockchain uh, company. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm helping a lot of companies. I, I went to the Fed meeting with Adam Ludwin, helping him to, pre uh, to prepare his keynote speech because he is, he is a tremendous spokesperson for this industry, by the way, he knows how to paint this story in ways that the audience tremendously appreciates. And, I, and that's why, they, why he was chosen to give the keynote speech. Uh, but when he and I first met, which was at Consensus, uh, I don't know, about two months ago, Consensus 2016, uh, we, we, we started talking about the payment system. And so he and I had multiple conversations about the payment system. And he said, hey, will you come with me and help me um, prepare this? And so there I was um, as, uh, as someone who helped prepare the, uh, just did a little part, obviously. Adam is a tremendous speaker and, and he just did a, a tremendous job. Uh, and it was just great to watch it happening live. And I knew because I'd seen the drafts of his presentation that he planned to, to donate Bitcoin to Wikipedia and uh, I just, you know, that was quite a moment when that happened because I strongly suspect that there had never been a, a, uh, a Bitcoin transaction originated from the Federal Reserve boardroom previously. And <laughs> it, it, uh, it uh, hashtag probably, right? Um, uh, but uh, it, was just, it was just great to be there because it, was, it, it just said, hey, this, trend, this technology has gone mainstream. Um, you know, early on, I wasn't, I, I was uh, afraid to utter the word Bitcoin in mainstream financial circles. And now there's a Bitcoin being sent from the, 
center of the Federal Reserve building. Holy cow, that's that's a lot of progress. And it shows how far we've come in a relatively short period of time. The belly of the beast. <laughs> Uh, it was. It's certainly where a lot of the, where certainly where the monetary policy decisions are made. Um, in fact, actually, I'll probably post uh, some of the pictures that I took. I, there, there were there was a ten thousand dollar bill from nineteen eighteen on the wall that fascinated me because think about what that is worth today. And the only thing I can think about why we would have printed a ten thousand dollar bill in nineteen eighteen is that that was probably how interbank payments were settled. They would be settled in a, in a note like that. That didn't circulate on the streets. That probably circulated only between banks. Um, and now there are central banks who are working on you know, using blockchain technology for interbank settlement. So the, the equivalent of that $10,000 bill from 1918 is now, uh, is now you know, in proofs of concept happening on blockchains. We'll see if they go mainstream, and I think they will. Okay, I have one more, one last question for you, and then I'll yeah. let you go. Um, so, what will the rollout of these uh, of these um, these asset tracking uh, blockchains look like? Um, you know, normally, I, normally, I imagine you'd, you'd have two parties that would uh, with a problem. You've got regulators on the one hand, and then the uh, the industries that they're regulating. How do you get everyone in that industry to dis- to agree upon a standard for recording their uh, their for recording assets and uh, and credit uh, that that might be held against those assets in such a way that is compatible with what regulators want to see? Well, that's why I I said to regulators, hey, folks, you know. If you're not at the table, the industry is going to design these standards without you, and they and you may end up not having access to some of that critical data because it's just hashed to the chain. And if you don't have access to the underlying data, all you have is a hash. Okay, that's helpful, but it doesn't um, it doesn't uh, um, you know get you what you really need, which is as as Chris John Carlo, by the way, who is fantastic, his speeches. I would highly recommend that anyone who's interested in this and the regulatory aspect read his most recent speeches. He was at Ground Zero having worked for one of the big um, credit derivatives providers during 2008. So he witnessed what happened. And no one says better, articulates this better than he, that we did not have information at that time to, to know what the real counterparty risk exposure of one financial institution to another was. And here we are in 2016 and we still don't have it. And he's right. Um, so, I, you know, peop- when, when, when there are regulators like that who are willing to stand up and say, hey, you know, we really want this technology. This technology will give us the ability to get that visibility. That's awesome. But I would say take it a step further and actually get involved in the standard setting process to ensure that, um, that, that what drives the standards process isn't entirely just efficiency from the, from the industry's perspective. The regulators should want that transparency at, that should not come at the cost of efficiency. And even if it means it takes longer for this to be implemented, this is absolutely something that, that the regulators should, uh, should be interested in and to, to make sure that they don't miss this, this incredible opportunity to get that transparency that they so, so sorely need. Fantastic! Thanks for uh, for joining me, Caitlin. And um, where can people read more about what you've uh, what you've discussed today? Yeah, uh, I, my little blog www.caitlin-long.com 
C-A-I-T-L-I-N dash L-O-N-G dot com. Awesome. Thank hey, you. It's been great. I, uh, yes, it's I, been I, fun. I, I'm really glad I got the chance to talk to you. This is this is a subject that I never get to broach, so it's uh, very good. It's really cool to have an actual expert on uh, <laughs> on this, and, and and it's fun to talk about it and you know share my expertise. I I I truly believe the the securities industry wants a lot of this uh, and wants to be able to clean up certain aspects of the industry where it just hasn't been able to be cleaned up because the technology didn't exist before. So uh, the, the insurance and, uh, the, and insurance and securities industries are actually, I think, going to be a lot more receptive to this uh, than than the skeptics believe. Um, but the critical thing is, we just have to make sure that the technology is easy to implement, the user experience is good, and uh, that that this can actually, you know, the the switching costs are actually. Uh, more than covered by multiples of what it, of what the benefits of putting this technology are. And if, indeed, if we can do that, then we're really going to help clean up the financial system and, and, and make what is currently something that's not very stable, uh, finally safe and sound. Thanks for joining me on the Ether Review, Julian. Uh, would you please introduce yourself and explain what your involvement with Ethereum is and your project Gollum? Arthur, I, I, I'm really happy to be with you today here. Um, I'm Julian Zawistowski. I'm CEO of IMAP uh, and of, of Project Gollum, which is one of the most important projects we, we have at my, IMAP at the moment. We have been with Ethereum from almost uh, very beginning. The very idea of Golden was born because of, of, of the meeting with Gavin Wood. And the meeting was cancelled and we, we started complaining about this whole Ethereum concept that it doesn't make any sense to have whole network of computers computing uh, the same things. It is much better to have a uh, network of computers doing parallel computing. And that was how the uh, concept was born. Well, then we eventually uh, joined uh, Ethereum. Uh, Pavel Glisa, who is member of our team, worked with Gavin on uh, uh, IFOM JIT. Uh, he still works on that, uh, by the way. Uh, and that, that, that's how we, we started our adventure with, with Ethereum. And, and we continue it working on Golem even now. So what is Golem and what pain point does it address in, uh, in today's information networks? The basic concept behind Golem is to create a market, uh, to create a computing power market. So you have the power of electricity, you have a power of a market of, of, of many commodities, and you have a kind of, of market for, for, for computing power because you can go to Google Cloud or, or Amazon Web Services or, or many other cloud providers, so-called cloud providers, and, uh, and buy uh, compute from them. Uh, still, we, we, we have uh, millions of, of computers that are not uh, used uh, at their full capacity that are standing in our offices or, or homes. And 
we believe that the technology, the, the network technologies and, and transaction system technologies have advanced to the point where we can try to connect all those computers we <coughs> use for um, editing text or, or, or browsing web or, or watching uh, movies. We can connect them into a peer-to-peer -peer network and create uh, an, an enormously powerful computing device this way. And of course, we, we need an incentive for users to join the network. And this is exactly where the market kicks in. So we want not only to have a way to, to, to pass the task, to pass the compute from machine to machine, but also to reward uh, users for uh, contributing to their machines to, to the network for performing the, the actual uh, compute on, on the machines. And it is where uh, Ethereum uh, comes in because, because Ethereum is an essential part of the transaction system to, to make it possible. So how do you use Ethereum to, to achieve your ends here? Basically, what happens in Golem it's not a blockchain technology. So all the compute we do are, are done off-chain. And in fact, uh, any transaction system could be used if only it would meet uh, certain prerequisites. But as it happens, only Ethereum-based technologies uh, are capable of fulfilling all the needs that Golem network poses on a transaction system, which is, uh, well, first, the system has to be decentralized. It, and when, I, when I'm when saying that, that it has to be decentralized, I mean it has to be decentralized. So that, that rules out, in fact, all traditional systems like, uh, I don't know, Visa, wire transfer, or, uh, or PayPal. Uh, not because of transaction costs, not because of uh, fiat money regulations, but because they are not decentralized. If we are building a, a truly scalable and truly decentralized system, then we need a truly decentralized transaction system. And of course, that finds out naturally to, 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 to the area of cryptocurrencies. Uh, but then the question is why 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 Ethereum, not for example Bitcoin, and this is and at least uh, two factors are at work here. Uh, the first one is is the transaction cost. So uh, with Ethereum using uh, using many technologies behind Ethereum, not not coming into details, you you can go down with the transaction costs much lower than in in, in Bitcoin. And, and Bitcoin transaction costs are, are already quite low, by the way. Uh, so that, that's the first point. And, and the second is that uh, when you use Ethereum, you can use smart contracts. So you can, for example, build uh, a, a kind of escrow logic to make sure that even when the system is fully automated and fully decentralized, still the users taking part in transactions are somehow uh, protected from, 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 from frauds, from, 
um, bad behaviors of other users by the very logic of, of transaction system, like automatic escrow at the beginning of the transaction, just to make sure that the uh, user requesting uh, computing power from the network has enough of, of eaters, enough of resources to pay for, for the work done. So what stage of development is, uh, is the Golem project? Well, in, in, in fact, what, what happened with, with the DAO somehow influenced our, our plans. So we, we uh, had a very precise uh, uh, way forward defined for the next uh, uh, three months and then a year and a half, assuming that we are submitting proposal to the, to, to the DAO. Uh, that included, for example, opening repository during the next week or two, in parallel with uh, uh, proposing our draft proposal to, to the DAO. Because what, what we showed already is, is, is like draft prep proposal. <laughs> and uh, at the moment, we, we are more or less ready with, uh, with the draft proposal, which is much more complex, much more detailed. Mm. But the truth is that the recent development with the DAO means that uh, all that should be at least postponed. So we decided to, to move forward with, with alpha tests now uh, for something we, we called uh, Brass Golem, which is, uh, uh, which is a golem focused on, on one task, which is uh, uh, rendering, rendering in, in Blender. And I think you can expect public alpha of this version of Golem within the next month. So I think that first half of, of July is, is a good estimate for this version to, uh, to go public. Uh, for sure at the beginning, it will be operating on, uh, uh, on Ethereum testnet, not on the main, uh, Ethereum uh, blockchain uh, because it will be alpha. Um, but I think that we are with this first uh, use case, we are really, really advanced. And, and, and I do hope that we will have uh, an operating column network for at least this first use case uh, this year. Of course, that depends on, on many factors. We are somehow dependent also on uh, External technologies we, we use, for example, IPFS for uh, resource uh, transfer, uh, and I, IPFS is, is 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 not complete yet. So we experience some problems with that, which is natural for for uh, alpha software. Mm, so that's that's that that's where we are at the moment with the development of of the golem itself. And, and then I, I think once we are ready with this uh, brass golem uh, focused on rendering, I would like to have another at least 18 months to deliver what we, what we call iron golem, which will be much more uh, complex system uh, supporting uh, tools for developers to integrate with golem. So uh, ultimately, of course, we, we, we don't want to be those who integrate all possible use cases into Golem. We just want to, to, to give developers tools to integrate their software they need uh, with Golem. And that is going to happen within, within the next 12 to, to 18 months. 
So what, uh, what kind of funding are you seeking to develop this project? Golem at the moment is, is entirely uh, funded by, by IMAP. Mm, of course, to complete this uh, ambitious iron golem goal, we need external financing. I, I think we will make it to brass golem and to rendering by ourselves. But to to scale up and to uh, and to have something that will really really be capable of, of much more than, than just rendering, we need to, to scale up uh, the project. And of course, uh, seeking uh, VC investor is is would be a quite natural path, but if not uh, for the fact that uh, I'm quite convinced that this technology. Uh, ultimately, should be open source technology. Uh, that if we are talking about the infrastructure of, of, of the Internet of Tomorrow, about Web 3.0, then this uh, this project should be community driven and uh, and open source. And that that and that's why we we consider uh, Vidal funding or other form of of, of, of crowdfunding. So what do you what risks do you see in centralized ownership of the Golem network? In fact, design of the Golem as the peer-to-peer network is is a very strong case in favor of uh, of decentralized ownership. Uh, if we would like to to to, to create a, a centralized solution, then we would rather follow uh, a Boeing logic, uh, which is, by the way. Really, really cool. I, I like Boeing Project. It was one of the inspirations for us. Um, but but Boeing Project logic is just to have uh, a central point that distributes computing uh, to many many nodes and then collects results. So uh, you control the process of submitting the task to the network, and of course that can be done this way, but. I don't think you would be able to scale up to to really really huge network this way, and you would also have problems with uh, uh, acquiring uh, enough demand for for your compute. So peer to peer design where anyone can contribute to the network computing power, but also can request computing power, is 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 a logical solution, and. Peer-to-peer design uh, goes much better with open source because uh, you will need to have quite powerful software installed on uh, your computer with many security considerations being absolutely natural. And and I think this kind of code should be uh, reviewed and should be open to make our case stronger. Still, of course, it is possible to... uh, Imagine a peer-to-peer network that is controlled by uh, a single business entity, uh, by um, ownership of of, of, of of copyright for 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 the software, and this also could work. But in fact, that would replace one bad um, uh, design, one maybe not bad but not perfect design. Uh, of the internet we have at the moment with another uh, centralized and, and, and prone to 
to all related problems design uh, of the of the internet of tomorrow we would like to build. This sounds to me like the very nature of the network not only lends itself to decentralized ownership, but the incentives bound up in ownership uh, are, are quite central to the way that the network functions. Yes, exactly. And, and, and also, this is the part of, of the business case behind Golem. If you, if you decide on, on decentralized ownership and, and open source, of course, the, the business case is, is, is quite different from the business case behind a property art software. Uh, for, property arts, for property art Golem, of course, the, the main uh, business case is, 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 is to control uh, to control the inner flow of request to the network. Like you have uh, a huge network of, of nodes that work for you and you're the kind of, well, maybe not Dr. Evil, <laughs> but, 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 but someone empowered to use this network for, for, for your purposes. And then you just create a, a kind of interface like, like, um, like uh, cloud providers interface for developers to, to be able to integrate with the power you deliver them. And, and I think that that would quite rule out the, the market from the equation because you would be the middleman between those who want to buy computing power and those who want to sell computing power. And what I believe in is that if we make it totally decentralized, uh, also in the, in, in, in the ownership, then we will be able to create a prosumer market. So, so at the end of the day, this is like in, in, in many years forward, but in the, in the end of the, uh, of the year, you, you will use and you will contribute and perhaps you will be net zero or, or net close to zero. Okay, so the market will drive, the, uh, drive remuneration down to virtually the cost of running a node, right? Yes, I think ultimately yes. This is this will be uh, a, a, a long way before that happen, uh, but I, I think that at, at the end of the day we can go down to the uh, to the price of electricity. Thank you, Caitlin and Julian. Also, thank you to Crypto Compare for your support. Some of the music on today's episode was provided by Dreamers Delight. Follow them on SoundCloud. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info, or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. Ether